Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, I want to welcome Jim Goodall. He is retired Air Force, author, and world-renowned expert on the SR-71 Blackbird spy plane, the F-117 stealth fighter, and Area 51. Jim, welcome. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm still stuffed from Thanksgiving, but I survived. I also survived Black Friday by going nowhere. <laughs> Same here. You know, I survived both. It's good to hear. Uh, but looking forward to tonight because we're going to discuss some of my favorite stuff. Uh, and one of the most, if not the most, top secret facilities in the United States. Some of the black projects that may be going on there. And some of the players involved, such as Bob Lazar. But first, tell us about yourself. Tell us a little bit more about your background and what got you interested in aviation. Well, I had, my interest in aviation started when I was about five. Uh, I, had already, I, we're, I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in the middle of Silicon Valley before it was uh, known for computers. Back then, it was known for fruits and nuts, not the two-legged type, but the type that grew in trees. And I was 1951, 50, my, my dad came in the bedroom. I had already gone to, you know, got ready to go to bed. And he came in and said, there's, there's something coming, you have to see it. So we went outside, and we weren't that far from San Jose Municipal Airport when it was just a small little, uh, small little airport. There wasn't anything significant going on. But all you could hear is the ground was just, was almost vibrating, and that the, the sound was unbelievable. And over the coast mountains, heading to Travis, were not one, not two, but twenty-four Convair B-36s. That ten-engine, two hundred and sixty-foot wingspan strategic bomber, uh, built in the started building in the late forties and you know, up through the fifties. And it, and it, that's what that's what locked me into uh, airplanes, and I just went nuts over that. Uh, a couple years later, we had moved from San Jose to Los Altos, you know, the Los Altos Mountain View area. My best friend's dad was base commander at Moffett Field. We pretty much had a run of the place. Uh, the uh, Marine guards that guarded Moffett Field referred to us as Captain Smith's son and that friend of his, and I was that friend of his. And uh, during that time, uh, Danny, uh, Danny said, hey, there's something cool in the big hangar one. That's the giant hangar there at Moffett Field, where they used to hand, you know, handle uh, very large blimps. He said, you got to see it. So we went in there, and most everybody knew us just by sight. And we went to the far end, closer to the bay, and there was a, a series of uh, curtains up there to sign that said off limits. But you're not going to tell a seven-year-old off limits means stay out. So we went behind the curtain, and there, you know, there behind the curtain was the still classified XF-104 Starfighter, and that was my first, you know, my first diving into something from, you know, from uh, the famous uh, Lockheed Skunk Works. Danny quoted uh, me to get into the cockpit. I got in the cockpit. We closed the canopy. The latch malfunctioned, and I couldn't get out. We had to call Shore Patrol and the Marine Guards to get us out. And that was 60-some-odd years ago. Uh, and that's really with the beginning. And then uh, things led on, and, and I joined the Air Force. I uh, ended up at Lowry Air Force Base as a communications specialist. And 
In February of 1964, I got a set of orders to go to Edwards Air Force Base to support three programs for Category 1 testing. I was a telemetry guy. So when I got there, I knew one of them was the YC-141 Starlifter, the XB-70 Valkyrie, and at the time, a classified program, which turned out to be a Blackbird. And on March 10th, 1964, I saw my first Blackbird. It was, it was a YF-12A Interceptor, and I have, I've never been the same since. So that was really the beginning of my, my passion for all things Lockheed Skunk Works and my passion for things that go bump in the night and Area 51. And so, industry. I understand that uh, you and um, John Lear were one of the first ones to actually do some photographs of Area 51. Yeah, John, uh, I, I became John's friend almost by accident. I had a dear friend named John Andrews. He was the plastic kit development manager for testers. They make scale model airplanes, cars, whatever. And he'd been friends with John for 20 years when I, you know, when I met Lear. And that was in the early 70s. And he was just a character who loved airplanes. He's from a very famous family. His dad invented Learjet or brought Learjet to the marketplace. I don't think he invented it. I think he was started out as a Swiss fighter. And John went to school in Switzerland. His dad knew a lot of people in, in Switzerland. And when that program uh, was not going to go f- any farther than it was, he bought the rights to build it as a uh, corporate transport. And that gave the birth to Learjet. Now, what types of projects were you aware of that were going on uh, around that time um, that were considered uh, top secret or classified? I mean, uh, as far as the 1970s and 80s time frame? Correct, yes. Well, I, I, was, I was aware of a, a program called Have Blue, which was the technology demonstrator for the F-117. I knew about the F-117 probably 10 years before it ever was ever made public. I knew it was a Lockheed Skunk Works airplane. I knew it was black. I knew it was powered by General Electric F-404, I think D-500 engines. I knew it was faceted. And I'd worked with uh, John. I'd worked with uh, Bill Sweetman at Aviation, not Aviation Week, at uh, Popular Science. He was doing an article on the F-117. But at that particular time, he was like a blind man describing an elephant. We had all the pieces correct, but we had them on the wrong sides and in the wrong place. But I heard it about 10 years before it happened, before the public was ever given an opportunity to see the F-117. I also heard about a program called Excalibur, and I still have not seen that that airplane. I was told it was operational. It had to be 18, 20 years ago, and it still hasn't surfaced. I've also been told that there's, a, there's another secret Air Force base besides Tonopah Test Range up in the northeast, extreme northeast corner of Nevada. Now, for the last four years before I moved to Arizona, I lived in Hawaii, which made going out in the desert you know, near to impossible. Um, and I'm getting to the point now where I'm more than happy to go out in the desert and do snooping. The hardest part, if I'm camping, is 
not the camping, not the cold or the rain or the snow or the security people. It's getting up off the ground after I've been sleeping on the ground for, you know, for a couple hours. It just, at my age, it just, it just gets harder. So then, uh, yeah, I was, I was aware of a lot of some of the unmanned programs. And I, I, knew, I knew about Bird of Prey, which was a, which was a Boeing uh, McDonnell Douglas uh, project. And that's the one that's, you know, it's now sitting at the Air Force Museum. I'd been given a patch and, and the person said, I can't tell you about the program, but if you look really closely at the patch, you'll, you'll see the airplane. And for the life of me, I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it, and I just couldn't find it until we saw the first picture of, of the bird of prey, and it became very obvious that it was a uh, – it, it looked like the scabbard on the, uh, on, the, on the sword that was on the patch. Very interesting. And you said you, you saw the, the Blackbird. What were the circumstances of you getting to see that? In, in 1964? Yes. Okay, I was, I was assigned to Edwards Air Force Base to install and maintain ground-based telemetry for Category 1 testing for three programs, the YC-141, the XB-70, and which turned out to be the classified program, the YF-12 Interceptor which was the fighter version of the Blackbird. And with that, I just, I became hooked. I mean, it changed my, it changed my life forever. When I got, I got out of the service in 68 initially, and I, I decided to write Lockheed Air Force CIA Department of Defense. I wanted some color, even black and white, eight by 10 photos of the Blackbird. I was willing to pay the going rate and their official policy was not to cooperate. So I started digging. The more I dug, the more I found out, the more I found out, the deeper I dug. And over the course of the last 45, 50 years, God, it makes me old. Uh, <laughs> uh, one, I became a friend of Ben Rich from Lockheed because of my passion towards his airplanes. And I've, I've managed to interview most everybody who's crashed one, guys who flew them for the first time, the engine guys, the avionics guys. So I became, by accident, probably from a historical point of view, one of the most knowledgeable persons on the planet on the Blackbird program. And that includes the three manned birds plus the D-21 drone. Now I understand you wrote a book that um, on for about one of these top secret planes that almost got you in quite a bit of trouble. Is that right? Yeah, it was. It was the very first F one seventeen book. Bill Sweetman and I co wrote it. It came out before Desert Storm, and it really. I guess it it really caused a. I don't know if you can say it on, on, on the internet, I'll say it. It caused a shit storm is what it did. Oh, yeah, go ahead. And all hell broke loose. So, so after being out of the service for 10 years, I decided to, to be able to have access to military bases where I could photograph airplanes because I'm an aviation nut. I joined the Minnesota Air Guard. And I was a member of the Minnesota Air Guard for 21 years. So I had total uh, 27 years of total military service. But when Desert Shield broke out, 
I had a, at the time, a fatal attraction girlfriend that I was trying to get away from. So I called my, the day after Saddam invaded Kuwait, I called my boss. I said, uh, General, I said, any, any possibility of getting activated for, for this upcoming war in, in, in Southwest Asia? And he says, well, I just got a, I just got a memo from uh, Guard Bureau saying we're looking for Air Guard historians. And that's what I was. I was the wing historian. So the next day, I got a set of orders, and uh, I left that afternoon for D.C. Once I got to D.C., I'm, you know, I get settled in. I'm going in for my permit, permanent Pentagon pass. I'm over in security, and there's a flag on my clearance. I'm being investigated for something. So uh, I knew who the problem was. The problem, his name is Pete Ames. He's a good guy, but he's a bureaucrat. And I, I had his number. I called him up and I said, Pete, this is Jim Goodall. I'm here at the Pentagon. I'm trying to get my permanent pass and I have a flag on my clearance. And you're the one, you're the, you're the cause of that flag. Oh no, I'm not. I said, where are you located? I want to, I, we got to talk. So he said, I'm in 5D 156 and they've changed the numbers, the name room numbers since, but it was on the fifth floor in the D ring of the Pentagon. And it was special projects. Pete was the deputy director for program security for special projects. So I said, can we meet today? And he said, sure, uh, one o'clock. So I got there about a quarter to two. And I, there's this real, real long hallway and corridor. There's only one door in the middle, nothing else. So I, I pressed the cipher, cipher lock buzzer and the door opens. There's a uh, young lady behind the counter. I said, I'm Jim Goodall. I'm here to see Pete Ames. And her jaw about hit the, hit the desk. I said, just a minute. Uh, Pete will be here in a few minutes. So I'm sitting there. I'm in uniform. At the time, I was a tech sergeant. And I had a procession of guys coming in, both in uniform and uh, in civilian clothes. I could hear them saying, hey, Goodall, you want to see what Goodall's in here? He's in here, he's, he's in, here in person. You got to see what he looks like. So, uh, you know, right about one o'clock, Pete came out. We went into his office with another agent and he started interrogating me. He said, when I saw, when I saw the, the transcript of your book, I wanted to put you on active duty and charge you with espionage. And I stood up and I had a copy of the book autographed to Pete. I threw it on the table. I said, Pete, uh, there's exhibit one, charge me. Oh, we can't do that. I said, I know you can't because I haven't violated any security. Not, not before, not then, and not after. And he, he said, well, you're, well, I don't like you asking questions. I said, that's my job. I'm an American citizen, and when I ask questions of my government, I expect an honest answer. If it's classified, say no comments, classified. If it's not, I demand an answer. Those are my tax dollars building those airplanes. And I said, and you don't own a damn thing. Those are owned by the American taxpayer. You're a custodian. And this thing went on from 1 o'clock to about 3 p.m., so it was a, a good two hours of going back and forth. And I'm not intimidated by Pete or anybody in the building. If they want to put a bill at me, they would have done it a long time ago. Um, and, I, and I was, I was really getting tired of, of the crap. And I finally, I, I, I was getting hungry. I hadn't had lunch yet. 
because I wanted to be at Pete's office. I said, are, are we done? And he said, well, I guess so. And I stood up. I'm about six foot. Pete, you know, maybe five, six, five, seven. And I get right up to him and I put my face right, almost into, right in his face. And I said, Pete, you know what pisses you off about me? Uh, what's that? He said, I'm not afraid of you. I went, turned around and walked away. And he turned about the color of your shirt or my shirt. And I heard from a buddy of mine that they sent him home about 15 minutes after I left because they couldn't get his blood pressure down. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's, and and I've, I've, been, I've been referred to as that uh, uh, son of a bitch from Minnesota. I know when uh, Don Emmons, who I've, I've uh, got back on his good side, Don was a colonel, former SR-71 driver, he was responsible. His last years at the Air, in the Air Force, he was responsible for security for the Blackbird program for Senior Crown. And for ten years, every time he would hear my name, he said, "Oh, that goddamn good all again." So I was a pain in the ass to him for a long time. And when my Blackbird book came out, I called him up or emailed him, asked him for his mailing address, and I sent him a copy of my book. And I got a real nice response back saying. He thought it was just another Blackbird book, but it turned out, he said, I have that right in the middle of my, uh, uh, my living room you know, with the rest of my Blackbird memorabilia, and it's, it's his little shrine. So that, that, just, that just pleased me no end. So, <laughs> very but nice. I've, been, I've been a pain in the butt to, to a lot of people for, for a very, very long time, and I really don't care. It's my, it's my job to push my government, to ask questions of my government, and to see what, what they're spending our hard-earned money on. Because yeah. it's your, your, yours and my money that they're wasting away on various programs and projects and stuff throughout the federal government. Right. Now, when it comes to Area 51, um, are most of the facilities underground? No, no. I... Uh, I interviewed a former SR-71 pilot that chased a UFO. Now, he won't admit it now. Apparently, he's been talked to. His name is Dave Fruhoff. And Dave was, uh, when he retired from the Air Force, he became, he got the job as facility manager at Area 51. Now, he didn't live that far from my dad. So uh, when I went out to visit my dad, I tracked uh, Dave down, went up to his house, and we had a discussion about Area 51, spooky airplanes, the Blackbird and such. Dave was also one of the uh, guys to bail out of, a, uh, of an SR-71 before it crashed. So he had, that, was, that, was one of the, that was the primary reason I went to, to see him, because I, I wanted to interview everybody that had crashed one that survived. Uh, the only person who wouldn't inter- wouldn't let me interview him was uh, a Colonel Denny Bush. He, I think he lives in Houston, and because I just I pushed him the wrong way, I guess. But I so, but I asked Dave. I said, "Okay, Dave," said you're the facility manager. Are you res- were you what was your responsibility? He said, "Absolutely, every single structure within the confines of the base called Area 51." I said, are there, any, are there any underground facilities? He said, not at Area 51 and not that I'm aware of. But on the other side of the Papoose Range, which is the backdrop for Area 51 when you see photos of it, is the Nevada test site. And they have the ability to 
uh, drill a 36 foot diameter hole through solid granite at about a foot of an, a foot an hour. And they used that capability when they were testing underground nuclear weapons and when they're building Yucca Mountain. So the technology exists there, but not at Area 51. And Dave also said that when you scar the desert, a hundred years from now, you'll still see the scars. So wherever there's an underground facility, if they've carted it out from under, under the mountain behind Area 51, Papoose Range, one, you'd see a road. Two, you would see a debris field. They had to haul that dirt and rock somewhere. I doubt seriously they took it off site. They dumped it somewhere with, you know, within fairly close proximity because who's going to know? It's the most secret place on the planet, at least that we know of. And, and in reality, if you, if you printed, penetrated the perimeter of Area 51 and they shot you dead, your body's within sight of the perimeter. There isn't a legal law enforcement entity that could go in and retrieve your body and try somebody for your murder. It, the place, even though everybody in the world knows Area 51's there, there really isn't a mechanism for you to, or for law enforcement to go after anybody that was within the facility if they did you harm. Interesting. Yeah. Now, um, do you believe that any of these surrounding facilities, supposedly S4 or any of these underground top secret places that they were actually or still are um, working with exotic materials, reverse engineering, possible extraterrestrial craft, stuff like that? Well, and this is, this is where, the, where the, the, the controversy starts. I knew, I met Bob Lazar through John Lear before he went to work out at S4. It was a day that I had photographed the F-117. I was the first civilian to photograph the 117 at the fence line at Tonopah Test Range. I was with John Lear. We'd gotten back to his house this early January of 89. They just announced the existence of the F-117 on, on November, I think November 11th, 88. And then 11 days later, they announced the existence of the B-2. So it was, it was either the 11th or the 22nd. And I don't have my notes in front of me. I don't use them. But, um, but I just I photographed the 117. And I, had, I was shooting print film because I wanted a, a, a quick turnaround if I got something. And even though I had a, I had a good Nikon camera and I'm up there shooting uh, 36 roll exposure, my body was trembling. It was, it was like I'm 12 years old. I'm seeing my first naked woman. I mean, I, I almost couldn't control it, control it. And after I had it processed out of the 36 exposures, I think there were four that weren't blurred. But I made, I made uh, the, you know, the cover of Coco Fan, which is a Japanese publication. I made uh, covers. I made Avweek and I think 20, 20, 25 other magazines used that photo. I made it, it was a good year for me money-wise. I made uh, quite a bit of money. I was going through a divorce and I was broke and my company had gone out of business and it was just good timing. So, but when he got, when I got to, uh, we got back to Lear's house about nine o'clock, nine fifteen, the the day I photographed the 117. And those of you who are in your thirties have never heard about it. 
but they used to have a place called photo mats. This is way before digital photography. So if you took a picture at a, at a birthday party or whatever, and you wanted a quick turnaround, you'd go buy uh, a photo mat, which is like a little kiosk, like your baristas are for coffee, probably some of the same buildings. You'd drop your film off and come back the next day or a couple hours later, depending on you know, kind of time frame or what you're willing to pay for, and you have your prints. So we get back to Lear's house. It's, it's after 9 p.m. There's no, none of the photo mats are open. And John tells me, hey, I got a buddy of mine. I just, I've only known for a short time. It's very interesting. He's, he's applying for a job out in the desert. Uh, he'll be over here in about 15 minutes. So about 9.30, guy shows up. Nice looking guy. Uh, you can tell he's smart, a smart guy. Um, and... and uh, Lear says, uh, Jim, I'd like to introduce you to Bob Lazar. And he was happy to see me. And I said, you know, I, I told him what we had done that day. I'd photographed the 117. And he said, I had to wait till tomorrow to go to Photomat. And he said, yeah. I said, I have a C41 processor at home. Let's go to my place. Yeah, John lives up near Sunrise Ridge, which is near the Mormon Temple there in the north end of Las Vegas. And Lazar lived off of West Charlton. Charleston, about, you know, 15, 18-minute drive away. So we jump in, in Bob's car. We're heading to his house. And he said, you know, I feel sorry for Lear. I said, why is that? He's from this famous aviation family. His dad brought Learjet to the world. He said, and the son of, son of a bitch believes in UFOs. He said, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically or touch it, it doesn't exist. So we got to his house. Um, we went to the, the C41 processor. He started processing the film. I'm just sort of looking at all the stuff he has in his house. I saw a diploma. Now, he said he went to MIT, so I'm assuming that's what it was. And I've been criticized by a number of people. So, well, you went to his house, and it's, how do you know you, you saw his MIT diploma? I said, I saw a diploma. But it was 30 years ago. I was going to, into his house for the very first time. I have a very good memory, uh, but I'm criticized for not knowing exactly what the diploma or where it was from. I'm assuming it was from, from MIT, because that's where he said he went to school. Uh, we developed the film, went back to uh, Lear's house, and from that point on, I was a friend of Bob Lazar. Now, another, another, another group of people, again, this is multiple people, said, isn't it a coincidence that Jim Goodall and John Lear know Bob Lazar. It's, not, it's a coincidence. That's all it is. I happen to know Lear because of his famous background. Uh, John is into you know, spooky airplanes and, and interesting people. And it just happened. Those things just sort of came together and became friends. I, I still uh, occasionally will send an email off to uh, Bob Lazar, I, he now lives up in the UP of, of Michigan, but I think he's, mo I, I heard through the grapevine that he's moving back to Nevada, so that I don't, I, I haven't tracked him down or talked to him since. Um, now, speaking of verifying Bob Lazar, you also uh, got a hold of his W-2 at some point, isn't yeah. that right? Well, no, Bob gave me his W-2. 
he had marked out his, his social security number because I didn't want that floating around. And, and this was just before uh, I knew I was going to be activated for Desert Storm because I'd requested it. And he sent it to me in the mail. I think that's how I got it. It's irrelevant how I got it. I had his W-2. And I had a, it was an afternoon. I had some extra time. I didn't it was a W-2 from, from S-4, was it? From Naval Investigative Services or Naval Investigation. Uh, it, was, it was a name that really you can't find that, that exact name in the Pentagon directory. Okay. But I looked at yeah, Naval Investigative Services. I thought it's a good place to start. So I'm in uniform at the time. I'm a tech sergeant, E6. I'm in uniform. I find out where the, uh, uh, the investigative service uh, place is located there in the Pentagon. I go in there, doors open, walked in, and there's a lieutenant commander. A lieutenant or a lieutenant commander, one of the two, were, were sitting behind the desk. And I said, sir, can you tell me where this place is located? And I hand him Bob Lazar's W-2. Now, I've been told in D.C. or in the Pentagon, zip codes 20201 through 20235 or thereabouts go to non-classified locations. Zip codes 20237 through maybe 43 go to classified locations. I wasn't paying that much attention, but the, the uh, naval officer looked at the uh, uh, W-2. They said, just a minute. And he got up and walked into the admiral's office. Now, a Navy admiral is not going to talk to what they were referred to as a, an enlisted puke. I've heard him refer to me as that, or enlisted people. And the uh, officer comes out and he said, the admiral will see you now. So I go in there, I give him a proper salute, and he says, parade rest. Not at ease, but parade rest. So I'm standing there, and he's looking at Lazar's W-2. He says, Sergeant, I don't know where you got this W-2, but if I ever see your face cross my threshold again, you'll be the most sorry son of a bitch in NCO of the United States Air Force. Do you understand? I said, yes, sir. He said, you're dismissed. With that, I saluted him, did an about faced, and walked out of his office. But as he was saying that, he took Bob's W-2 and put it in the shredder. That right wow. there told me that I hit a sore spot, which probably meant that, oh, Bob is real. Uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a couple other instances that you know, led to you know, uh, me believing Bob as 100%. His story has never changed. Even when it was... It meant big money in his pocket at the time if he would just embellish saying he saw grays, grays or you know, uh, saw pictures of, of the bodies or whatever. None of that. He said there was references to, they called them the kids, because I guess they're short. But he said he never saw one. You know, and he saw other craft. He could see it through open bay, uh, bays. But he only worked on what he referred to as a sports model. And that's the uh, model that Tester came out with. Uh, John Andrews sat down with uh, Bob and they put together a, uh, uh, he told him exactly what it looked like, uh, estimating the size. It's pretty hard. I mean, you, if something's 20 feet, not 50 feet, you know, with the, you know, you can tell the difference. 
and he just uh, he came out with a model. And it, but his his story has always been consistent. When George Knapp, who is the chief investigative journalist with uh, KLIS in Las Vegas, Channel Eight, it's a CBS affiliate, searching uh, looking for Bob's background, he went to Albuquerque, where he said he worked for Sandia, and went to their library. And it was an, it, and there's a, a classified section of the library, and then a public section of the library. He's in the public section. He went and found a phone book on the time frame that Bob said he worked for Sandia, gave him the telephone number, the people he worked with in that office, and the room number. And sure as shooting, when, when uh, George found the phone book, there was Dr. Robert Lazar's name. And the phone number was the same number the guys he looked up, he said he worked with, those were the same numbers. And then Bob had the, the clicker. He told George, says, I, I have a jet car, which I've seen. He had a Lamborghini Countach body on it. I think it was a J34. I mean, just by today's standards, really a gutless jet engine. But he had gone 300 miles an hour and a quarter mile. And in the, in the Albuquerque uh, local Albuquerque paper, there was a feature article on Bob Lazar. It said, Sandia scientist goes 300 miles an hour on the ground on the weekend. There's something along that line. And there's a picture of Bob standing in front of his jet car. And it says, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure if he said professor or doctor or maybe just uh, nuclear physicist. Bob Lazar, working at Sandia, has an interesting hobby, and it's racing jet cars. So that was another, it was another thing to go, yep. Fast forward a couple more years, I have a buddy of mine that was one of the early enlisted guys on the F-117 project at Area 51. And on days when there was a down day, when they were doing some major work on it that didn't require his, his talents, they had, you know, they had access to a Humvee. They had a security badge that was, if it's good for Area 51, it's pretty good for everywhere else in the Nevada test site. And they drove around the Papoose Range, and they're in the southwest corner on a dried lake bed, Papoose Lake. And they're just looking around, trying to, you know, looking for cans, looking for artifacts or whatever. And it... And he said, out of nowhere, and I won't give his name because he's still, he's still in the industry. He said, out of nowhere came a handful of guys in, in black uh, utilities sporting machine guns asking, what are you doing here? Let me see some ID. So they, I, think, I think my friend was with two other guys. They showed him their, their security badges. He said, you have no business being over here. I suggest you go home go back to base right now. So with that, they jumped in their uh, uh, Humvee and headed back to Area 51. So this, and, and I didn't mention anything about Papoose Lake. I didn't mention anything about S4 or Bob Lazar or spooky stuff. This was an observation. He said, oh, by the way, when I was out there, I found this kind of unusual. Do you have any explanation for it? So it wasn't something that I pulled out of him. It was something he gave it to me freely. So that's a, 
He didn't know where the people came from. There were no vehicles. Uh, they just appeared. Now, if there was a hidden door, and we've gotten pretty good on camouflage and stuff nowadays. Um, and, and another, uh, another, I'm not nailing the coffin, but another thing to, to add validity to, to Bob's claim that he worked at S4, there was a Mormon missionary that had requested permission from DOD to be able to go across the south end of Area 51 through the Nevada test site. He was following the trail of the lost Mormon tribe. And he was, and he was very frustrated because he wasn't getting anywhere. Now, he's not an airplane guy. He's not a UFO guy. He's not an uh, alien technology guy. He's looking for evidence of the lost Mormon tribe. So he snuck his way in on the Mercury side, worked his way in pretty much under the cover of darkness. He found an, out, an, an overcropping where he uh, made his, you know, spent the night. And also to keep, you know, be, to be less visible if they were flying overhead with uh, infrared, uh, if their floors on, you know, they would pick them up. But as he, as he was laying underneath this uh, uh, outcropping, He's looking towards Papoose Lake and, and the Papoose Range. And all of a sudden, he said it was, it was like the garage door opening up. Uh, the, he could see the light actually rising and, and opening up, and it was very, very bright. It was there for, he said, for a period of time, didn't say what, how long, and then it closed. He didn't see anything take off. But the next morning, when, when, it, became, when it became light, he got his binoculars and looked over there. There was nothing there. There was a there was a base of a mountain and the dry lake bed. That's exactly where Bob Lazar said S four was. Wow. Now going back to what you said, I find it interesting. Um, Bob Lazar was concerned um, about John Lear that he uh, believed in aliens. Now this must have been before he worked at S four, right? It was. Yeah. It was. It was a. a a week or month before he actually went to work out of S4. He just, he just thought it was so totally outrageous that this man from this incredibly famous aviation family, Lear, said, the son of a bitch believes in UFOs. He said, how stupid is that? And that stuck with me. I mean, to me, that proved what Bob came out of the shadows and said what he was working on. That proved to me that that he was real because he did not believe in UFOs. He ridiculed Lear for being a UFO guy. Did he ever talk to you about any of the other projects that he might've been working on? Yeah. The only thing he said that when he was at Sandia, they were trying to bring the kill ratio in dollars and cents per nuclear weapon. They were trying to go from 12 cents a fatality down to 10 cents a fatality based on uh, the yield from a nuclear weapon or weapons. And he said, the, the guys at Sandia really didn't have a sense of humor. He said, one Halloween when he was there, they were testing something in a, in a chamber. They were firing a, firing a laser into something, a target. And Bob decided that he was going to pull a joke on him. So he, he got a pumpkin, carved it out into a jack-o'-lantern, and put it in the chamber. So when they fired the laser, 
it went it went through the head of you know the pumpkin into the target, and of course they got all sorts of uh, uh, erroneous you know, readouts from the censors. They got all upset, and when they opened the chamber, here's this um, back of lantern with a hole through his head, done by a laser. They get you know they, they didn't. It, Lazar said he was he was la- almost laugh, laughing so hard he almost wet his pants, but he said no one else th- found any humor in his joke. <laughs> now, as you mentioned earlier, you you knew Ben Rich. Um, for those that aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about who he was and how you came to get to know him, and any inside information that you might have uh, gotten from him. I I became acquainted with Ben Rich primarily through because of John Andrews at Testers. And also I had a fascination with the Skunk Works. Now Kelly Johnson knew my name. Kelly Johnson, the founder of the Skunk Works, uh, referred to uh, John Andrews, that son of a bitch from Testers. And he, re- he referred to me as that pain in the ass from somewhere up here in the Midwest. I mean, I heard him say that with my own ears at a function. And a, uh, uh, but I, Ben and I sort of fell into a friendship because of my passion for the Blackbird. He was an engineer at Skunk at Skunk Works, right? He he was Kelly Johnson, the founder of Skunk Works. He was Kelly's right hand man. He's responsible for the inlet and the propulsion system for the Blackbird and other airplanes. And we just, we just, we became not pen pals, yeah, in a way pen pals, but over the course of, of the last, his last 25 years on this planet, either he would call me or I would call him about once a quarter. And I could call him at the Skunk Works. June, his secretary, would recognize my voice. And she'd said, you know, Mr. Rich's office, said, hi there. Oh, Jim, how are you today? He said, just a minute, I'll connect you with Ben. Now, he could be in a meeting with a half a dozen engineers in his office. He put me on speakerphone, and we would talk about spooky airplanes, Area 51. He got to the D-21. The F, yeah, we got to a point where we talked about the F-117. And uh, it was just something we did. In August of 89, I got a call from Ben. And he said, Jim. He said, the Blackbirds aren't going to make it through Congress. And if anyone can scrounge one, you can. So I'm giving you a heads up before anybody knows that the Blackbirds are going to be going off to museums. And I said, well, I had heard that if the program came to an end, that they were going to cut them up. He said they were going to. But when Larry Welsh, who I looked as as a traitor to the Blackbird program, entered to America, Larry Welsh was, at the time, uh, uh, Air Force Chief of Staff. He replaced, uh, uh, my mind just went blank, Jerry O'Malley, who was Air Force Chief of Staff, who was the first blue suited to fly an operational mission in the SR. He loved the program. Welsh was turned down to fly the airplane when he was a major. He wasn't a good enough pilot. So he had a, uh, he hated the program with passion. So he's the reason. He's the primary reason he got no support from Air Force, and and he had a lot of friends in Congress, and it also cost a lot. The program was expensive, 
but he got the job done. He calls Ben Rich up in the fall, I guess it was late summer of 89. And he said, when the program comes to an end, I want all 30 of the remaining Blackbirds. I want 27 of those airplanes cut up and scrapped. And Ben said, they're your airplanes. I will do what you request us to do. But the Air Force is going to pay the full cost of dismantling and cutting up the Blackbirds. Now, they had already cut, you know, Carter had already had the tooling cut up. So, uh, Welsh says, well, give me a number. Ben said, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll, take, a, it'll take me a, a week or so to get the numbers down. There's, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 4,000 pounds of asbestos or asbestic products in the Blackbird. They're located in Southern California, in L.A. County, no less. And to, to dismantle one Blackbird, not the 30 or the 27 that he had indicated, because two are going to be at the Air Force Museum and one was going to go to the Smithsonian Air and Space. That's why out of, the, out of the 30, there was 27 to be destroyed. Ben came back with a number that ensured that the Blackbirds would be going to museums. He said the cost to dismantle one Blackbird is $67 million per airplane. And Welsh said, well, then give them to museums, but make sure they're not flyable. So a couple of the airplanes flew into their, into their locations. The other ones were, they had the wings cut and moved. Uh, the A-12 that I acquired, we cut the wings off at wing station 112. Took us two and a half days. We rolled it into a New York Air Guard C-5 with an inch and a half of clearance to spare and flew it from Palmdale to Travis, spent the night there. The next day we headed off to Minnesota. And I have the distinction of being the only guy on, on the planet to have been in a cockpit of a Blackbird at 33,000 feet at Mach 0.72 inside another airplane. That's awesome. That's my claim to fame. No one, no one else, yeah, even if someone wanted to do it, no one else would be able to pull it off. The thing about the C-5s, Arnie Gunderson from Pratt & Whitney was trying to get a Blackbird to put on a wind vane at the West Palm Beach facility there uh, where, they, where they flight test and check, you know, they, where they built the, end, the J-58s and where they do flight test and some of the other Pratt & Whitney stuff. And the Air Force said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll lease you a C-5, but it's, it's $967,000 per day plus gas. And I scrounged two C-5s Total of 10 days for free. <laughs> I was our unit, Sergeant Bilko, and that's just, but we were, we were able to pull it off. I had, uh, when we got up to Travis, we spent the night and got gas. Next day, when we're heading out, the loadmaster was going down to check the load, and I said, Can I go with you? He said, Normally, the answer would be no, but since this project, it was entirely mine, he said, Go down. You can come down with me. So I climbed up in the, on, the, on the landing gear, down the chines. I had a wheel chock holding the, the canopy open because the, the counterbalance was, was out of nitrogen and that canopy is heavy. So I pushed it open. I had a five gallon bucket uh, on the ejection seat because it's all the way down and a cushion. Got in there, 
close the canopy. And I was in there for about 45 minutes. And I get a wrap on the bottom. I open the canopy and the uh, chief master sergeant said, Jim, we got to go back upstairs. So we go back upstairs and now we're about 40 minutes out of Minneapolis. He said, said the boss said, you can, you can ride in a cockpit on the way uh, when we land. Well, I'm already up at the forward end of the, the C5. Excuse me. He said, no, downstairs. So I went downstairs. I was in the cockpit of the Blackbird when it landed. So not only do I have the distinction of being the only person in the world to have been in the cockpit at 33,000 feet, but I also landed the airplane inside another airplane. Ah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Now, um, Ben Rich also gave some, um, you know, in talking to him over the years, I guess, he gave you some pretty profound indications on how advanced some of the technologies we have really are. Well, now he said this in addition to just me. He said it to, you know, some other people. He, he's quoted as, as saying basically the same thing. But in, in my last phone call to Ben, this is about 10 days before he passed away, he said, Jim, we have things out in the desert. And he wasn't referring to Area 51. He said, we have things out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Not what you think you can make in 50 years, but what you can comprehend. And if you've seen movies like Star Wars, Star Trek, we've been there, done that or decided it wasn't worth the effort. I said, Ben, you want to expand upon that? He said, nope. And he died less than two weeks later. So he had, he had promised me, he, unfortunately he passed away too soon. He had promised me that, uh, assuming he made it through, he had esophageal cancer, so, assuming, assuming he made it through his uh, chemo and stuff, that he would be willing to do a no-holds-barred interview with me. Oh, uh, wow. The letter exists. My friend um, Michael Schratt has, has a copy of the original letter that Ben makes that statement. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't live long enough to fulfill, fulfill it. So he would know a lot more if he had. <laughs> now, have you, over the years, have you ever spoken with anyone else with, say, top secret clearance that may have given similar indications on you know, extremely advanced technologies or reverse engineering uh, exotic craft or anything like that? Well, the, the, the gentleman I told you from, uh, from who was the facility manager at Area 51, when he was a lieutenant colonel, he's an SR-71 pilot. He's on a night training mission in the far western Pacific, probably near the Philippines, out of, out of Kadena, Okinawa, which was de- Detachment 1, of the ninth strategic reconnaissance wing, which operated the SR-71s. He says it's about 11 o'clock at night, three-quarter moon. He's about 77, 78,000 feet at Mach 2.7. And he's just going through a training uh, uh, routine. And from the corner of his eye, he gets a glint of something metallic about five miles away and 5,000 or so feet above him. So he gets on, he gets on the, the, the radio on Secure Voice and contacts Kadena to see if we have another bird up. Because they had three SRs there, SR-71s. He said, no, you're up there by yourself. He said, no, I'm not. I'm going to go take a look. So the SR-71 will fly at Mach 
2.7 or 3.2 in, in minimum burner. The, the airplane wants to, wants to fly itself to destruction. I mean, it's, it wants to go fast. So he advances the throttle. He's doing about a 10-degree bank as he's climbing. And he wants to get a closer look. And he figured when he was about a mile or so away, you know, within 1,000 feet or so of the object, he still can't get a shape. It's metallic, and he's getting glints. This thing takes off at about a 30-degree angle of attack, and he figured he lost track of it uh, between uh, 180 and 200,000 feet. Now, when he retired in 1980, and he ended up getting the job at facility manager at Area 51, once he was there for a while, he started, you know, and everybody knew him, and they felt comfortable with him. He went about asking questions. Where's this airplane that I chased? Was it, you know, how, when was it tested here? And he couldn't find anybody to verify that there was anything ever that went that fast, went that high in 1972 or even, you know, even currently at the time he, you know, he went to work there at Area 51. Now, in 19... I think it was 1983. A buddy of mine, he was my roommate in Denver when I was when I was first joined the Air Force, and he was an air traffic controller. He'd been a air traffic controller in the Air Force for 17 years. Uh, he he got an early out uh, with retirement, and he went to work for the FAA as a air traffic controller <clears throat> at the Beria Tracon. at the Barry at Tracon in Oakland, California. He said it was, uh, it was springtime. They get, they start tracking a manned air breathing object going through controlled airspace. It went boom, boom, and it was off the screen. They, Bob calculates that it was going at least 8,000 miles an hour or Mach 12. But it, and it had priority over the SR-71. The only airplane that at that time that had priority over the SR-71 was Air Force One. This thing had a higher priority than the SR. They called, the, the, uh, the manager of, of, the, of the TRACON calls Beale, reports what they saw, a full colonel and a young captain come to the TRACON. Now, the colonel's talking to the GM. The captain's talking to Bob. Now, Bob took his job as an air traffic controller as serious as death. I mean, that was his job. He lived, breathed, and ate being an air traffic controller. And this captain says, look, Mr. Garrow. His name was Bob Garrow. He's since passed away, so I can use his name. He said, look, Mr. Garrow, you don't know what you were looking at. And Bob just got furious. And he said, look, buddy boy, I've been controlling high-speed exotic aircraft before your daddy poked your mother for the first time. So don't give me this crap. I don't know what I'm doing. With that, the colonel heard it. He came one and I said, no, no, Mr. Garrow, you don't understand. You didn't see a thing. I said, oh, okay, I can live wow. with it. So two years later, I'm at a, he lived in Pleasanton, California. And, it, and I have family in the Bay Area, and I grew up in the Bay Area. So I'm over at Bob's house, and we're talking about spooky airplanes and my, my favorite thing in the world, the Blackbird. 
And he said, you know, back in early in the early eighties, and he and he uh, tells me about tracking this thing going Mach twelve, going through controlled airspace, which I believe was Aurora. And uh, he didn't know what my passions were. He he knew I liked airplanes. He knew I liked the Blackbird, but he didn't he didn't know that I had other passions just be you know besides that airplane and that program. So that was a, that was another piece of the puzzle. The um, my mind just went blank again. <laughs> oh no, that's okay. Um, now in closing tonight. Um, there's a lot that has been going on in the mainstream media talking about UFOs. Um, we've had these releases from Navy pilots. They're now allowed to report the sightings they've had. Um, it seems like there's a slow drip of disclosure going on. And I've spoken to a few researchers, and some of them believe that it's kind of like a, an excuse to drip out some new technologies that they've been uh, holding back. What do you think is going on with some of this stuff? Well, I know my, my boss at, at the Air Guard, I was a state staff historian for the Minnesota Guard, and my boss was Major General Wayne Gatlin. And General Gatlin, one, is an incredible aviation photographer. He's since passed away, but uh, just, a, just a hell of a nice guy. And we were talking about UFOs one afternoon uh, during drill weekend. And he said, you know, I chased one over Lake Superior. I said, you did? He said, how? He said, well, it was an F-94. We were on alert. And the Finley Air Force Station uh, had a high-speed unknown over the middle of Lake Superior, and we were called. And we went out there. They were flying F-94Cs. They could go supersonic. They were going straight down in burner, but that was about it. they headed out to Lake Superior, and they normally, at least back in the you know, through the 1980s, you didn't fly across Lake Superior, even in a military aircraft, because Superior makes its own weather. They usually go around Lake Superior if they're going to uh, cross it. But they're over the lake, and they see the object. And General Gatlin said he, you know, he, he put the airplane in burner because this thing was moving away from him, but he was within uh, weapons range. The Wizzo, the weapons, uh, you know, the weapons operator in the back seat, turns on the radar, gets a lock. As soon as he got a lock on, the radar goes, Doof! it dies. So he reboots, does it again, gets into uh, you know, a firing position, turns the radar on, it goes, Zzzz! and as soon as he locks on, it, goes, it just dies again. So they're heading, they're heading towards Finley, and Finley is Air Force Station's tracking it. And this is right on the uh, shore of Lake Superior. And all of a sudden, Finley says, it was coming towards us, but it's disappeared. It didn't come past us. And General Gallon said he's in full burner. He's watching the fuel gauge go down. Unlike the SR that likes to fight, fly fast, that's the only person, that's the only airplane that flew in constant afterburner. So as you're getting closer to the shore, General Gatlin says, well, I can see the object. It's directly over Finley. So they run out of their geodesic dome and look up, and here's this object. And he couldn't really get a definition of it. And it just and, and as soon as the guys went out, and General Gatlin said, the Wizzo got ready to turn his, his uh, radar on. This thing went straight up and disappeared. And the, the visibility was unlimited. I mean, it's 
you're Duluth, Minnesota, and the North Shore Lake Superior, you're in the middle of nowhere. There's other than taconite and a power plant, there's no industry up there. So the air is crystal clear. And it just disappeared. But so I asked General Gavin, and this had to be in the late 80s when I when I asked when he told me about this. And so, so if I was an Air Force or military pilot and I saw a UFO, what what should I do? He said, Go home, have a beer, and forget about it. I said, what do you mean? I said, all it's going to do is tarnish your reputation, have a black mark against you, this guy's a kook, or this guy isn't playing by the rules, and it, it won't do you any good. I said, but if you are going to report it, there's no, formal, there's no formal avenue to report a UFO other than going to public affairs. And that you might as well go, go into a closet and talk to yourself because that's about as far as it'll go. Uh, but today, because of the internet, because of digital cameras, I mean, you, you, you take your, your iPhone. I mean, it has better resolution than a lot of your real expensive cameras back in the 50s and 60s and even the 70s. And you get your iPhone 9 or 10 or 11 or 15 or whatever it is today. I mean, I, I, have, I have a couple thousand dollars with the Nikons, and it just irritates me that I could get almost as good of image as far as you know, not blowing it up too much as I can with my, with my cell phone. As I right, can. yeah. So, but uh, it just, and it, it just keeps, ha- keeps happening that way. There's, there's more and more things are coming out that they, they can't put the lid on it. It's, with this thing called the internet, there's just too many ways for the information to get out. So I think because it was so blatant and because so many people saw it, you have the, the incident on the, on the Nimitz. Um, it's almost like, uh, what was the one with uh, Kurt Douglas was in it, uh, where they go through a time warp and now it's, it's, it's early in 1940, December 6, 1941. Um, right. I can't remember the name of the movie, but yeah, I, I don't remember at yeah. the time. But they, they go back and they go back in time, and they go they go fighting uh, zeros with their fourteens. But um, it's it's I don't know. They just they don't. I don't know if we're in charge. That's the thing. People say, "Well, how come this stuff hasn't come out?" I don't think we may not be in charge. We may not be the one saying, "Hey, we don't want any of this information to come out." It may be whoever is controlling our government, if there's if such an entity. I don't put anything past what's going on in this world. You, you look at TV today, you look at what's going on in Washington. Um, the, inmate, the inmates are truly running the asylum. I agree 100%. Uh, yeah. You know, everything is backwards nowadays. Yeah, and- what's up is down, what's down is up, what's right is wrong, what's wrong is right. Um, and I... When Spielberg came out with E.T., uh, he was quoted saying that he went around for, for a number of years trying to find money to do this film. And he kept getting doors slammed on. No one, no one wants to say anything about an alien that comes to Earth and plays with kids. But there's, there's, an, there's a, and again, I don't know, know this for sure, but I've been told by a number of different people that exist. There's a, there's a group within the Central Intelligence Agency that funds uh, programs to promote 
what they want to promote. And they wanted to desensitize the general public to alien beings. And the best way to do it is start with the kids. And what, E.T. came out 30 years ago? So you have people in their mid-30s who know for sure that, yeah, E.T. was real and he did call home. Even though it was a movie, it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's like Pavlov's dog. It's been imprinted in their brain that, and it's nothing to, it's nothing to be fearful of. Well, I don't believe that. Um, the other thing, I was a docent at Kitt Peak National Observatories, uh, west of Tucson. They have 22 optical telescopes and two radio telescopes, a 12 meter and a 25 meter. They have the largest uh, optical telescope is the four meter Mayall telescope. It's been it's been modified to do uh, research on dark energy. But the two point one meter telescope was operated by Caltech for five years in a search of exoplanets, and then over the course of the five years, in a very very small section of the Milky Way, our galaxy, they identified. 8,000 exoplanets. I mean, we're talking a real small little part of our overall galaxy. And just before I stopped being a volunteer, I didn't care for the volunteer coordinator. I don't like being talked down to. You can yell at me and call me names, cuss at me, but don't talk down to me. I left. But just before that, we had a meeting, uh, one of the top astronomers and all the docents and all the staff at the National Optical Astronomy Observatory, or NOAO, which is based at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And he said, we have some new information based on work that's done by all the telescope operators in the world. They've all uh, more or less put all their information into one pot. He said, we calculate with uh, using the best uh, methods that we know how that for every star in the universe, and that's a number you can't cram into your head, for every star in the universe, we figure there's one and a half planets. And out of that incredibly huge number, we calculate that there are approximately two billion, that's with a B, two billion Earth-like planets in an habitable zone in a, around a star similar to ours with liquid water. And that's enough to scare the shit out of anybody. We're not alone. Uh, we can't be the only, we can't be the only uh, mistake, if you want to call that, in the universe or the only place where life began. It's, it's impossible. With two billion Earth-likes. Now, the universe is 14 and a half billion years old. We're four and a half billion years. There's, so there's some places that have had a 10 billion year head start on us as far as technology. Now, do you think that they are a threat to us? It seems, you know, the technology that they have is so advanced that they could have easily, you know, if they want to take us out, they could have done it by now. Um, do you think it's more of an observation thing or should we be worried about something in the future? That I, I really don't know, but my, my gut feeling is, is that uh, we may be a uh, almost like a farm team 
uh, it may be that one of the multiple entities out there that are that are uh, live entities, maybe their Earth, maybe their uh, their solar system is dying. You know, we have we have a bill, about a billion, maybe a billion and a half years before our sun starts to burn out. Uh, and it will never nova. It will never go into a supernova. But when it turns into a red giant, we're going to, you know, we're going to be toast anyway. Um, it may be that they were maybe maybe we're maybe we're a farm. I mean, there's a lot of people that are abducted. They don't know where or how. Uh, we may be when when they're inviting us to dinner. We may be dinner. Right. There's definitely more questions and answers when it comes to all of this stuff. Jim, thank you so much. That was fantastic, fascinating information. Many times, times, as long as as I'm not traveling somewhere or unavailable, I'd be more than happy to come back on. That would be great. And thank you again so much. And you have an excellent night. I will. You take care. And uh, you don't have to worry about staying warm. I do. So you take care. Stay warm. Good night.